This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is the Gator, Mike Greenwell. Card number 493, outfielder for the Boston Red Sox. All right. Mike Greenwell, this is a high-value card. Can't wait. But before we do that, we do have some follow-up from the last two episodes. First, about Don Baylor and the box bottom card. In our Don Baylor episode, we talked about two Don Baylor cards in the 1988 set, one traded and one his regular set card. We got a reply on Twitter from at IHC guy, Andrew, on Twitter, longtime friend of the show. And he said, I apologize for being pedantic. No apology necessary. (laughs) But there is a third 1988 Tops Don Baylor card. He said, here is a brief article about the series of box bottom cards. And we have discussed the box bottom cards, I think, on a very early episode. On the bottom of every box of wax packs in the 1988 top set, there were cards signifying special moments of the season. And there would be four cards on each box bottom and a total of 16 cards. And if you were real careful, you could cut them out and they would look like a regular baseball card. Don Baylor had one of those commemorating... Don Baylor gets hit by the 244th pitch of his major league career. The title of it is The Big League's New Plunk Champion. Worth it just for that title. And this commemorated him passing Ron Hunt's 243 hit by pitches. That's a fun card. How much is that one worth in the 1988 Beckett? It was not listed as anything other than a common card. The only one that's listed that had value beyond common that we've talked about so far is Eric Davis. And I don't think that we mentioned the box bottom card in episode one of the 1988 Tops podcast when we discussed Eric Davis, but we have many others to go. And Andrew also pointed out, if you look closely at this box bottom card, it really does look like this was the photo shoot where Don Baylor's regular 1988 Tops card was taken because the picture on this card is of Don in a Red Sox hat. In his regular card, he was on the Twins. And then in his traded card, he was on the A's. So that would have given him three cards on three different teams. Unprecedented. That unprecedented three-team triumph would have been fitting for a player as special as Don Baylor. What a versatile player to be photographed for three different teams in such a short time span and then be hit by a pitch wearing all of those jerseys so frequently. Great job, Don Baylor. We also have follow-up on last week's episode about Bo Diaz, right? Someone pointed out that Bo Diaz's rookie card in the 1978 top set was a catching prospects card, and it had four catchers on it who all ended up having great careers. Bo Diaz, Lance Parrish, Ernie Witt, and the guy who we remember as one of the greatest catchers of all time, Dale Murphy. As a rookie in his first two seasons, Dale Murphy played catcher. Not great. If you look at his stats, Dale Murphy ended up being a gold glove outfielder. He was decidedly not a gold glove catcher in his early seasons, but he is on this rookie card as a catcher. We also had a comment from Chris Starr on Instagram who suggested that we should look into Bo Diaz versus Greg Maddox. And this I'll admit I missed in the loves to face section, 
because I had set Bo Diaz's at-bats against a pitcher above 10. And so I was looking at pitchers who he had more than 10 at-bats against. If I had looked at all pitchers, I would have seen that Bo Diaz was outstanding against Greg Maddox. He went six for nine with a home run. So a 667 average, a 1,000 slugging percentage against Greg Maddox. And that includes in the first game that Greg Maddox won as a big leaguer, Bo Diaz was on the losing end of that and went four for four with a home run, three singles and a home run in a losing effort. But he had Greg Maddox's number in three appearances against the great Greg Maddox. So thank you, Chris Starr, for pointing that out. A really interesting side note in a loves-to-face addendum. One other note sent to us on Facebook by Baseball History Dork. <laughs> Sorry, that's the, that's the handle. I don't uh, think not... that that name applies to anyone who listens to the podcast <laughs> think, or yeah. makes the podcast. I think so. But it commented that in one of Bo Diaz's infrequent starts that winter for Caracas on January 6th, 1973, Diaz caught a no-hitter by Urbano Lugo. And then 13 years later, on January 24th, 1986, he was behind the plate when Lugo's son, also named Urbano, threw a no-hitter of his own for Caracas. So he caught two no-hitters by father and son on the same team, 13 years apart. What a feat. I mean, you got to say lifetime friend of the family at that point. Yes, that's a, a pretty amazing feat. We've had guys on that we've talked about who have caught two no-hitters in their career or in Ron Hassey's case, multiple perfect games. But for Bo Diaz to do that 13 years apart for two members of the same family is truly remarkable. So if you ever have feedback about our episodes, you can comment wherever you see the post on social media. You can also email us to 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Now let's go to this week's episode and Mike Greenwell. And why are we talking about Mike today? We got a message from Bobby K at Bobby K Faves on Twitter, who said, thanks for the great podcast. I love it. Found you last summer. Been catching up since. I have a request for Mike Gator Greenwell of the Red Sox. We're going to talk about Gator, not the movie with Burt Reynolds, but Mike Greenwell, outfielder and all-star rookie for the Red Sox. Greenwell had big shoes to fill as the left fielder for the Red Sox. He had a decent career. And in retirement, he picked up a second sport. He had every kid's dream job, which is not what he's doing now, unless your dream was to be a county commissioner in Florida. <laughs> you know, some kids. We, we, we can all dream. Yeah. He also has a Sabre bio by Joe Wancho. Thank you, Joe Wancho. This was a card that every kid in 1988 wanted to have because of that little gold cup. The future of the Red Sox outfield was so strong at this point with two all-star rookies. This seemed like a really valuable card. One of the most valuable cards in the set, in the top three in value for non-error cards. We did a little financial calculation before the show, David, and in current dollars, that $1 Mike Greenwell card is now worth nearly $3. I mean, that's based on inflation. I wonder how much you could buy this for on eBay, probably 50 cents. I mean, as an auction, you could put whatever value it means to you. So, 
Yes, according to inflation, $3. At the time, it felt priceless. This definitely was one that if you got it in the pack, you felt like you got a good pack. And this was not Greenwell's Topps rookie. He did have a 1987 Topps card because he had played in the 85 and 86 seasons, including in the World Series. This is a good looking card, I think, both for what looks like maybe a smooth dance move by Mike Greenwell or the end <laughs> of a swing. Yeah. Looking at the front of 493, it has just about everything we look for in these cards when it's an action shot. He has just finished his swing and dropped the bat. So he's in that that very dynamic moment where he's about to start toward first base but isn't quite there yet. He's crouched down. It does look like perhaps he's in a tango with a dancer that's just off screen. Looks great, though. His helmet is covering most of the letter S in Red Sox. His mustache looks excellent. He's got the gray away uniform with the red shirt peeking out from the top, which is really nice, and red stirrups, too. Very expressive eyebrows. And this is taken at Comiskey Park. You can see the yellow railings in the background. Those were the golden box seats. They were separated out with these yellow railings. And so... Those yellow railings, to me, it always made it seem like a really special place to sit if you're sitting in the golden box seats. But you can also see a vendor back there, I think, wearing a kind of pinwheel-looking hat. Looks like maybe he's selling beer or peanuts. I also wondered, now that I've zoomed in on the Jumbotron to a really unhealthy level, there's no sense of a painted cap here because it's just it's definitely a Boston Red Sox helmet. But are there painted forearms? Look at his absolutely bulging forearm bicep and elbow his arm is massive this may have been the reason for the high value of the card it's just like the muscle the pure muscle in this shot you're right that is a very clear picture better than we expect from these cards it, it far better than than any other that i've seen like the muscle extremely well-defined muscle it does seem like maybe it had a little bit of an artist's embellishment but all the same, it looks really good. Now let's go to the back of 493. And we have Mike Greenwell, six foot 189, left-handed batter and right-handed thrower, drafted by the Red Sox in the third round of June 1982, born July 18th, 1963 in Louisville, Kentucky, with a home in North Fort Myers, Florida. Greenwell was born in Louisville, Kentucky, the biggest city in Kentucky, population over 600,000. He was one of seven kids two boys, five girls, born to Leonard and Martha Greenwell. The family moved to Fort Myers, Florida when Mike was only five. Fort Myers in southwestern Florida, famous for the winter estates of Thomas Edison and Henry Ford. It was named for a fort built during the Seminole Wars, named for Colonel Abraham Myers, who was a quartermaster in the U.S. military, as well as a quartermaster for the Confederacy. During the Civil War, there was a Battle of Fort Myers, which was the southernmost land battle of the Civil War. During Mike's youth, there were around 25,000 people in Fort Myers, now up to 90,000. Mike grew up visiting the Royal Spring Training Facility in Fort Myers, and he idolized George Brett. As a teen, he relayed an incident where he yelled for Brett to toss him his can of chewing tobacco. Greenwell said he threw it up there. I started to throw it back to him after I took a little bit. And he said, keep it, kid. And in 1988, Greenwell still held on to that little can of chewing tobacco from his idol, George Brett. It's, what a charming story of 
<laughs> the baseball player sharing his love of chewing tobacco with with the youth. It's like the Mean Joe Green ad, but <laughs> with cancer. <laughs> Greenwell went to North Fort Myers High. The school was founded in 1962 as a segregated white high school. The school did not integrate until 1969, 15 years after Brown versus the Board of Education. Similar to the situation that we discussed in the Don Baylor episode, a long time after courts had ordered desegregation, Florida schools surprisingly had not. Some famous alumni of North Fort Myers include NFL stars, Neon Primetime, Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, and the freak, Javon Kurse. Also, producer Craig Leon, who has an impressive list of artists who he has produced, including the debuts from the Ramones and Blondie. He also worked with the Bangles and Talking Heads and has since gone on to work with Pavarotti and many other orchestral recordings. At North Fort Myers, Greenwell preceded Neon Dion as a multi-sport star by a few years. He was a star and leader on the baseball field. His coach praised his eye as well as his athleticism and competitive streak. On the football field, he was the quarterback through his junior year, and even though he didn't play as a senior, he did receive scholarship offers to play football. The University of Miami offered him a chance to play quarterback or wide receiver. Greenwell said he would have competed against Vinny Testaverde at quarterback if he had wanted to go to the U, and he said, quote, who knows what would have happened. I have a feeling what would have happened is that he would have not beat out Vinny Testaverde for his job. Instead of going to college... We get a This Way to the Clubhouse, which is that Mike signed as a third-round draft selection with the Red Sox, June 9th, 1982, by scout George Digby. This George Digby, again, not the second Earl of Bristol, as we have discussed in the past. This is the guy who signed Mike Smithson, Jody Reed, and Wade Boggs. We also discussed him in the Reed Nichols episode, a Red Sox Hall of Famer who passed away in 2014 at the age of 96. Digby said of Greenwell that he could do everything, but he was a bad fielder. Somehow or other, they learn how to field after being around guys, big leaguers for a while. They can improve their fielding better than they can improve anything else. So Digby figured they would find a spot for him in the field. According to Digby, he signed Greenwell for $15,000. Also drafted in the third round, Jimmy Key, Roger McDowell, Zane Smith, and Dan Pasqua. Greenwell started in the minors at Elmira, playing in 72 games. Splitting his time between second and third base, he hit 269 that first year, showing a good eye with an on-base percentage 100 points higher. But George Digby was right about his fielding. He made 25 errors at third base, where he started for the first 48 games. They moved him to second base for the second half of those games. He only had six errors in 24 games, so better at second base than at third. He spent the next two seasons at A-ball and Winter Haven, splitting his time between third base and outfield. 1983, he only played 48 games, hitting well 279 in that limited time. And in 1984, his fielding still not too much better. In 64 games at third base, he had 25 errors, but he was excellent at the plate. 306 average, 16 home runs, driving in 84 runs, and walking more than he struck out. 1985, at this point, he's already known as Gator for his childhood hobby of wrestling alligators. Another possible origin of this nickname is that he supposedly caught an alligator, taped its mouth shut, and put it in Ellis Burke's locker as a prank. Pretty good prank. 
I would dare suggest to the Topps Corporation that that would have made a better fun fact. Allegedly, he caught an alligator, taped its mouth shut, and put it in Ellis Burke's locker. Fun fact. Regardless of how he got his nickname, he had a good nickname, The Gator, and he impressed in spring training, showing some power as a lefty, but he was disappointed to not make the big league team, even though he at this point had only played at a ball, but still thought maybe he could make the big league team as a 21-year-old. The Red Sox had a pretty good outfield, Jim Rice, Dwight Evans, Tony Armas, all in their 30s, and Steve Lyons as the fourth outfielder. Greenwell sent to AAA, and he was disappointed but promised to work his way onto the Red Sox roster. He also showed some pretty extreme confidence in thinking that he could break his way into that big league lineup. He played well at AAA, but his numbers don't jump off the card. He was just good. 256, 13 home runs, didn't strike out much, but it was enough to earn a late call-up to the Red Sox, and this is a team that wasn't in the playoff hunt, so they were willing to give a guy who impressed in spring training a chance. So on September 5th, 1985, he came on as a pinch runner for his debut. He did not get in at bat for his first two appearances, but seven games that season, he went over five, mostly used as a defensive replacement late in the games. Then on September 25th, he came on in the eighth inning at Toronto. He flies out in the 10th inning, comes up in the 13th with a game tied 2-2 two to two and Bill Buckner on second base, and he hit a home run. His first major league hit was a game-winning home run. The next night, wouldn't you know it, another two-run home run and another win over Toronto. A few days later, he got his third hit, another home run, this time against Baltimore. So his first three hits, all home runs. In 13 games, he went three for 17 with two walks. So if you look at his slash line, he's hitting only 177, a 263 on base, but a 706 slugging percentage because (laughs) his only hits were homers. His last four games, he went seven for 14. That made his season average respectable and brought that up to 323 in 17 games for that first season. 1986, he again does not make the major league team out of spring training. He started at Pawtucket, but he couldn't be held there all season. In 89 games, he hit 300 with 18 home runs, only struck out 20 times compared to 43 walks. That earned him a call up in July. He played pretty well, but without the power that he had the year before, he hit zero home runs in 35 at bats, but he was hitting 314, and he made the postseason roster for the American League East champs. In the ALCS, the Red Sox go down three games to one against the Angels. They would win three straight to secure a spot in the World Series. Greenwell made two pinch hit appearances, getting a hit in game five, but after getting that hit, he was subbed for a pinch runner who was then doubled off in the next at bat. Relatively uneventful ALCS for him. In the World Series, as a 23-year-old player, he made four pinch hit appearances. He was hitless, but took one walk. Perhaps his most important moment was in game six, where after seven strong innings from Roger Clemens, the Red Sox are up three to two. In the top of the eighth, Clemens is supposed to come up to bat. He had had a blister on his finger, and it had opened up, bleeding on the ball. John McNamara claimed, my pitcher told me he couldn't go any further. Clemens said, I've never asked out of a game in my life. Where Greenwell comes in is he was called on to pinch hit for Clemens in the eighth inning, and he struck out. So in the bottom of the eighth, Calvin Chiraldi comes in. 
gives up a run. This would send the game to extra innings. Chiraldi remains in with the lead in the 10th, and we all know what happened from there. Ultimately, a disappointing end of the season for Greenwell, but he's still a young player, not yet a regular, but gets a spot in the World Series. Heading into the 1987 season that we see on the back of this card, after a couple years of cameos, Greenwell breaks camp with the big league club. The outfield is getting older. Jim Rice, Dwight Evans are coming to the end of their time in the outfield, and the Red Sox had a new crop of outfielders coming in. This new group of outfielders was so good that they earned a Fleer card called The Changing of the Guard in Boston. This is referred to in an article as one of the, quote, 10 cards that tell the story of the Red Sox. Finding this on a fan site, right in the middle of arguably the two best outfield trios in Red Sox history, there was a young core that showed the promise and potential to be among the all-time greats. Mike Greenwell, Ellis Burks, and Todd Benzinger were supposed to be the future of the franchise. And while it didn't quite work out, they came up with they came with enough hype to be commemorated on their own card together. Two of these guys, Burks and Greenwell, would have all-star rookie cards in 1988. Burks was the center fielder. Benzinger was supposed to take over for Dwight Evans and Wright. And Greenwell was expected to be the left fielder of the future. At first, Greenwell slotted in wherever. Jim Rice still got the majority of the starts in left field, but he was not very productive in 1987. Greenwell played some left, right, DH, and made 20 pinch hit appearances. And he said, I was brought along slowly like I should have, showed I could hit right-handed pitching, and now my goal is to be an everyday player. He hit 317 with 18 home runs against righties, 378 against lefties. He showed that he could hit right-handed pitching, and on the season, he hit 328, drove in 89, had a 148 OPS plus. McNamara said he can hit. There was never a doubt in anybody's mind. And in a big year for rookies, Greenwell got some AL Rookie of the Year votes. He finished well behind Mark McGuire, Kevin Seitzer, and Matt Noakes, but he finished fourth in AL Rookie of the Year votes. And that's how he gets this little gold cup on the front of this card. After 87, Greenwell approached Red Sox general manager Lou Gorman about his contract and said he wanted to deal with him one-on-one, not through an agent, and he negotiated his own contract. He presented Gorman with proposals for one- and three-year agreements. He prepared comps that matched his statistics with some of the other better players in the game. Gorman said he did his homework. He came in here with his figures, compared them to other players, and did a good job. He said, I can hit as well as Mattingly. And I said, Mike, you might hit better than Mattingly, but you haven't done it yet. It took two and a half hours, but he signed a one-year deal, raising his salary from $80,000 to $200,000. Great job, Mike Greenwell. It's a good reflection of his confidence at 23. He knew he had skills and he had high expectations for himself. I wonder if that negotiation tactic if any of that came from his history as an alligator wrestler. Of course. You got to negotiate. You got to think through your different options here. And when in doubt, tape their mouth shut. Uh, Lou Gorman said he had only seen that once before with one other player, really unexpected from Greenwell. He showed some smarts and some good negotiation skills. And that solid rookie season showed the Red Sox that they had a new left fielder. And this was a big deal. That changing of the guard, not only did they have some stars who were aging in the outfield, but in left field, since 1939, they had only had three players. 
Ted Williams from 39 to 60, aside from the war years, Carl Yastrzemski from 1961 to 74, and Jim Rice from 1975 to 1987. All three legends for the Red Sox, all three would end up in the Hall of Fame. And Mike Greenwell was asked to step into that spot, and he responded with an even better season for the Morgan Magic Red Sox. Through 85 games, the Red Sox are one game over 500, but it was not Greenwell's fault. He hit 345 with 15 home runs and 71 RBIs in that first 85 games. He's named to the All-Star team. He went 0 for 1 in his only appearance in that All-Star game. But on July 14th, the Red Sox decided to fire John McNamara, two years removed from that World Series appearance, and they asked Joe Morgan to take over until they found a permanent replacement. Yeah, and I love this quote from Joe Morgan. When they said they were going to look for a permanent replacement, he said, well, don't look too hard because he's standing right in front of you and you're talking to him. Kind of in the Dick Cheney executive search style, the Red Sox immediately won a doubleheader with Joe Morgan at the helm and then rattled off 10 more for a 12-game winning streak and then a seven-game streak soon after that. So winning 19 out of Joe Morgan's first 20 games, that took them from fourth place into a tie for first place in the American League East. They cooled down a little bit, but under Morgan went 46-31, and 31, taking the American League East lead on September 4th and holding on the rest of the season. In September against the Orioles, Greenwell had a huge game. He hit a home run in the second inning, then a ground rule double, and then in the sixth, we have some controversy. Bats catch alligators. So he bagged a couple of good ones during the winter. High fly ball in the left center field. Larry Sheets is back, having trouble with it, and can't make the catch. Greenwell never stopped running. He's on his way to third, and the throw is not in time. This will be an interesting scores decision because Greenwell, if they give him a triple, is has a pretty good leg up on hitting for the cycle. He had a home run and a double in his first two at-bats, and they're going to give him a three-base hit on the ball misjudged by Sheets. There was no question in my mind they were going to give him a triple. Doubled down the right field line in the fourth and tripled on a high fly ball lost by Sheets. Left center. Drive toward right field. It's going to drop for the cycle. Cycle for Mike Greenwell. It's a hard thing to get. Larry Sheets said that was an error. Frank Robinson called it ridiculous. He didn't want to take anything away from Greenwell, who he said was a great hitter, but he said calling that a triple was ridiculous. But Greenwell hustled and made it to third and then scored on an Ellis Burke sacrifice fly. So that hustle was huge that he didn't just walk it off thinking that it would get caught, he ends up scoring what ends up being the go-ahead run in a 4-3 to win, an important win for a team that was streaking toward an AL East title. He ends up getting a single in the eighth inning to complete his cycle, a pretty big game for Mike Greenwell in the middle of a pennant race. On the year, Greenwell finished third in the American League in hits, RBIs, and batting average, and second in on-base percentage. And a 160 OPS plus, which was third in the American League, 22 home runs, eight triples, and 16 steals. When it came time for the MVP voting, Mike came in second to Jose Canseco, who had the first 40-40 season. I don't think there was any doubt that would win the MVP. Canseco was the unanimous choice by the writers. 
and it makes sense. He did something that no one had ever seen before. I remember seeing that he was a 40-40 player and just thinking this is the greatest thing any baseball player has ever done. Based on wins above replacement, Greenwell was slightly higher than Canseco, mostly because Gator was actually good in the outfield while Canseco was below average. That said, Greenwell wasn't even the most valuable player by wins above replacement on his own team. That would be Wade Boggs, who hit 366 and had a 466 on base percentage, 50 points higher than the next best player in the American League. That said, Gator was the Boston Writers Red Sox MVP. He was awarded the Silver Slugger. Years later, Greenwell would be outspoken about finishing second to a known steroid user. He said, nobody remembers who finishes second. It cost me my legacy. There's only so many guys who can walk around saying I'm an MVP. It bothered me to lose to a guy who was using steroids. To add to the bitterness, the Red Sox played Canseco and the A's in the ALCS and were swept. Greenwell hit a home run in game three, but for the series hit only 214. In 1989, he had another good year, hitting 300 with 10 home runs in the first half. The Red Sox were in third place right around 500 at the All-Star break, and he earned a second All-Star appearance. He came in as a defensive replacement in the seventh inning, but did not get in at bat. In the second half of the season, he had a 21-game hitting streak, and on the year, he hit 308 with 14 home runs and 95 RBIs. Similar numbers in 1990, 297, 14 homers, 73 RBIs. In a close division race in the middle of a 10-game unbeaten run, Greenwell had a memorable moment against the Yankees at Fenway. On September 1st, already up 5-1 to one in the fifth inning, Mike was facing Greg Cattaray. The Yankees brought their winning streak to 10. Greenwell puts this ball into the right field corner, and Jesse Barfield, who was recently inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, and a great outfielder, he bruised his knee and missed the ball, and Greenwell kept hustling around, but in the highlights, they kept kind of cutting back to Barfield, who had the ball in his hand and was just kind of hobbling, but it just looked very strange. Like, why don't you throw the ball? Why are you holding on to it? It was very strange. The placement of the cameras, as we've noted in the Tom Bernanski episode, the cameras don't allow you to see what's happening in that corner of Fenway Park. Chasing after this ball, Barfield misplayed it and ran into the wall. And so then he's limping around. He's holding the ball. And Fenway is a compact park, and so this rarely happens. This is only the fifth time that a Red Sox player has hit a inside-the-park grand slam in the history of that park. So not a lot of players hitting inside-the-park home runs. It takes a little bit of help on the defensive side, maybe an injury, to get a not incredibly speedy Mike Greenwell in inside-the-park home run. And just last year... A Blue Jays player had an inside-the-park Grand Slam at Fenway, but that was the first time that anyone had done it since Greenwell in 1990. It's just a, a very strange incident and a memorable moment for Mike Greenwell. Unfortunately, in a replay 
of the 1988 ALCS, the Red Sox were swept again by the A's. Greenwell went 0 for 14 in that series. Yikes. 1991, another solid, if unspectacular, season. 300 average, only nine home runs, 26 doubles, and six triples, an OPS plus of 108. In 1992, he dealt with injuries to that massive forearm, his elbow, and finally his knee, and only played in 49 games. He returned strong, though, in 1993 with a 315 average, 13 home runs, and 38 doubles, and drove in 72 runs. It was an OPS plus of 125. And in the strike-shortened 1994 season, Mike had a down year, 269 average in 95 games. Comes back in 95, the Red Sox win the AL East. Mike hits 297 with 15 home runs. That's a pretty good Mike Greenwell year. He was 3-for-15 in the ALDS, and the Sox were swept again, this time by Cleveland. In 1996, he again had some injury troubles. He hurt his finger, had a sore back, and hurt his foot. He played only 77 games, but he hit 295, so still had a solid season at the plate. In a twist, the Red Sox DH that year was Jose Canseco. Mike had a big game against Seattle, driving in all nine of Boston's runs in a 9-8 win. And this is a record for the most RBIs in a game where a player accounts for all of their team's runs. So he drove in all nine of Boston's runs in a 9-8 win. Pretty big game. But by the end of the season, Mike didn't have a contract for the next year, and he saw the writing on the wall. He said, I'm not by any means saying I'm retiring because I'm not. If the right situation is out there, I'll play. I'll play with some enthusiasm and a new challenge. I'm not leaving upset, and I'm not leaving disappointed. Maybe we'll come back to that later. I think that Mike was was pretty upset. Yeah, it sounds like from that that he actually was upset. But without a major league contract for 1997, he looked at all options and signed for the Hanshin Tigers in NPB. But he only played seven games because he fouled a ball off his foot and broke it, (laughs) saying after having the back issues and then turning right around and breaking my foot, I kind of felt like that was a sign to move on. So he called it a career at that point, closing the book on Mike Greenwell, 12 seasons in the major leagues, all for the Red Sox, batting average of 303, which was a 121 OPS plus, 130 home runs, 726 RBIs, 1,400 hits, and 275 doubles. He played in two All-Star games, won Silver Slugger Award, and led American League left fielders in assists twice. How about in retirement? In 1992, while he was still playing, he opened Mike Greenwell's Bat a Ball and Family Fun. 10 acres of go-karts, batting cages, mini golf. He had an arcade, and he owned that for almost 30 years. The park is still open, but Mike sold it in 2019, so they had to change the name from Greenwell's. Now it's known as Gator Mike's. Yeah, it's an even better name. I would love to go to Gator Mike's. (laughs) It looks pretty awesome. I think now they've added in like climbing walls and some zip lines, so that Seems like a pretty cool place. Mike also was a coach for a little bit on the Red Staff under Bob Boone. And he also became a different kind of two-sport athlete than we've discussed in the past. And this is something that in his younger days, Mike had been involved in, stock car racing. So prior to signing with Boston, he had raced some stock cars. And the team made him sign a stipulation that he wouldn't do it while under team control. During his career, he started a racing team. 
but he was a figurehead. He wasn't the driver, except at one point he did drive a couple laps and it was caught on tape. And Greenwell told the Red Sox management, I violated my contract. It looks like you should release me. And Lou Gorman said, we don't release 300 hitters. (laughs) But when he stepped away from the game, he got behind the wheel. He won some smaller scale stock car races, driving the number 39 car, which was his Red Sox number. And then he entered the NASCAR truck series in 2006, and he entered a couple races. He finished 26th and 33rd, and he retired from racing in 2010. He and his wife, Tracy, had two sons, Bo and Garrett. Bo was drafted by Cleveland and spent a number of years in the minor leagues. These days, Mike has a new competitive endeavor. He is an elected official in Lee County, Florida. In 2022, he was appointed to the Lee County board by the governor, and he had already served on multiple boards on the local planning commission. Then he ran for and won an election. He had a primary opponent and a general election opponent, but he is now a fully elected county commissioner in Lee County. From an all-star rookie to a race car driver and an owner of a go-kart facility, and now a public official, now that we've looked at Mike's extensive career, what do we think? Mike Greenwell could have been the next thing in Boston in that line of Hall of Famers in left field, and it, he didn't quite make it. Not to that level. And that's that's not necessarily fair to compare somebody to Carl Yastrzemski or Ted Williams or even Jim Rice. But he was a solid player for the Red Sox, and he didn't like the way that Dan Duquette treated him on his way out of Boston. So for almost eight years after he left the team, he didn't step foot in Fenway or the Red Sox spring training facility. And then in 2004, after Duquette was gone, Ellis Burks gave Gator a call, clearly holding no grudge for the alleged alligator incident. And Greenwell made nice with the organization. He came back, visited, was a a bit of an ambassador, and was voted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame in 2008. And in his career, he had that unenviable task of joining a line of left fielders, following three legends. And he said that the fans didn't forget who came before him and would not let him forget it. If he missed a ball, they would say Jimmy would have had it or Yaz would have had it or Ted would have had it. But in his career, he hit 303 with a 121 OPS plus. Since the expansion in 1961, only 46 players have an average over 300 with over a thousand games played. And that's good company. A bunch of Hall of Famers, but some really Good names and players that we like to talk about, Will Clark, Sean Casey, Mark Grace, John Cruck, Kurt Flood, not just Hall of Famers, but other great players. Greenwell didn't have the longevity. He didn't play 2,000 plus games like a lot of the guys who made the Hall of Fame, but he was very consistent. If you look at his splits on baseball reference in higher leverage, medium leverage, low leverage situations, as the leverage goes up, his batting average on base percentage both go up. And his slugging stays right around the same. 458 in low leverage, 468 in medium leverage, 464. And his OPS went up with each of those levels of leverage. So what that means is that in situations where it's late in a ball game, there's a big opportunity to win a game, there's a runner on base in scoring position. In those high leverage situations, Greenwell was actually better than in low leverage situations. His OPS was 841 in those high leverage situations versus 819 in low leverage. 
no matter what, he was just a solid hitter with a over 300 or right around 300 average. He would get on base, hit for a little bit of power. But this card, as we're looking at it, it sets him up as in 400 at-bats, he's got 19 home runs, hitting 328. So you expect as he gets a little bit older, maybe he'll add a little bit more pop. The next season was 88, and he had a career-high 22 home runs. So if you look at this card, it could have been that launching point to superstar status. Instead, he had that outstanding 88 season, and then he remained good for eight more years. He never quite took off and didn't maintain that consistency of that 88 season for multiple years that would have put him on a trajectory toward the Hall of Fame. Injuries limited him, and ultimately his career ended at 32. So he didn't play into his late 30s to 40 like his predecessors in the Boston outfield. But he and those other guys on that changing of the guard card represented the hope of Red Sox Nation in the late 80s. You had those two all-star rookies, and the future was bright. And Ellis Burks and Gator had some good years, and the Red Sox made the playoffs a couple times, but they just couldn't quite get there. And it wasn't really fair to compare him to those greats, but Greenwell was so confident and the kind of guy who would go in and negotiate his own contract that he must have relished the opportunity. When he was 21, he wanted to to be on the major league team and was comparing himself to Don Mattingly at 24. That's the kind of person you need to step into that position who's not going to be afraid of the history that's behind him and wasn't afraid of putting his own skills to the test. And after Gator, you had... Will Cordero and Troy O'Leary for a couple years in left field. And then they finally found a suitable replacement, another guy who didn't lack confidence, and that's Manny Ramirez, was the next great left fielder. While Greenwell didn't have a Yaz career and he didn't win an MVP in 1988, he played a solid left field for nearly a decade in the shadows of greatness and in the shadows of the Green Monster. Maybe not an all-time great career, but a really good story and a good card. So thank you very much for the story today. And thank you to you at home. If you have a little room in your budget for a gift card to Gator Mikes, you can send it to us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>